0: Welcome to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today we are adding on another episode in our series on industry heroes. Today it has to do with innovators in audio, specifically Dr. Leo Baranek and Dr. Sidney Harmon. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale
1: and Dan Del Fiorentino and Mike Mullins.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library.
1: So, welcome back, everyone. This is really exciting as we continue our Innovators uh, series in Industry Heroes for our podcast, all taken from the NAM Oral History Interview Collection, going back to 2011 in our interview with uh, Leo Baranek. Truly a legend um, in audio. Really his claim to fame was the uh, fact that he was really insistent on measuring the acoustics in a lot of different opera houses, concert halls, and uh, auditoriums to create the most effective uh, way of hearing music and placing instruments so that they could be heard throughout the hall effectively. And what really came from it was a series of books, including one he published in the early 1950s, uh, about the uh, measurement of acoustic sound and really changing the way a lot of people understood how sound was... bounced off of walls and how it was observed uh, absorbed by different elements such as acoustic um, reinforcements and things like that so um, one of the things that really led to our interview was the fact that so many NAM members and uh, engineers of musical products were going back to that original book that he wrote saying wow this is really how we came up with the idea of improving our audio products so in a lot of respects he has helped uh, several innovations in audio development over the years just because of his insistence on getting those measurements right and really better understanding the, the way acoustics are heard by the human ear. So that's a long-winded beginning of what I hope is going to be a very exciting podcast, the first of which is going to be uh, our interview with him. And then we're going to talk about another hero in audio, and that is uh, Dr. Sidney Harmon a little bit later on. So as we get started, uh, what's going to be our first segment of Leo's interview?
0: We're going to be starting off this interview with uh, some general background info on Dr. Baronic. as well as where he grew up, uh, which was in Iowa, and some of his early interest in sound, how he kind of got into the field and stuff like that. And right before we get into that, we're going to mention that we do have his second book here in our offices in front of us, entitled Concert Halls and Opera Houses, Music, Acoustics, and... Architecture. Dan was hiding it from me, so I couldn't read the title. <laughs> and it is probably literally the world's heaviest book I've ever felt it's in my entire life. It's quality paper,
2: I think. Yeah, I think it's yeah. funny because it's not that big. It's like a standard size hardcover book.
0: Smaller than a textbook. But, but
2: it's so heavy. But I think it's, so it's heavy. I think it's heavy because it has so much info in it.
0: Yeah, knowledge. It's, it's heavy it's with got knowledge. knowledge. It has yes. a lot of
2: glossy
1: pictures. What yeah. he did is he went around the entire world and took pictures of all these concert halls um, and opera houses, and then Um, explained how that sound within those halls and those houses uh, are transferred to the person listening in the seats. And it's really amazing. um, This isn't the one that has as many um, of the measurements that I talked about before, but it certainly does have a ton of that as well.
0: Yeah. So if you can see and check out the book in your library or you want to purchase it online or something like that, uh, definitely go for it. And then let us know if you think it's equally as heavy as we do, because that's just, the I don't know, captivating. Um, So we're going to get right into the interview. And so let's hear some background info about Dr. Beranek.
1: Dr. Baronic, thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it.
3: Well, I'm pleased to be here. And I hope I can answer your questions. And and, uh, I certainly enjoy uh, talking about my background.
1: (laughs) One of the things that's kind of interesting to me is just your own uh, upbringing. Where did you grow up?
3: Well, I grew up in Iowa. Uh, Actually, I was, uh, earlier part of my life, I was on a farm. And then my father uh, went into a hardware store business with his cousin in Mount Vernon, Iowa. And we moved there. And then Mount Vernon also is the home of Cornell College, which is older than Cornell Ithaca by 12 years, 1,000 students. And I got my bachelor's degree there. And then through some kind of a a queer circumstance, I got a full scholarship to Harvard and went to graduate school there and got my doctorate at Harvard.
1: Mm, Amazing. And what was it like in Iowa as a kid? Did you have a nice childhood?
3: Oh yes, of course, uh, in those days uh, the, uh, people, the stu- uh, children on a farm would help with the chores and carry wood into the kitchen and and the, the stoves were wood-burning stoves. And and uh, also uh, I learned as I got little older to milk cows and do all the things you do on a farm. <laughs> but uh, then I say we moved to town and, and after that I always lived in in a town.
1: Now, when did you find your interest um, develop as, as far as sound and electronics and that sort of thing?
3: Well, of course, my uh, uh, interest at uh, Cornell in Iowa was to take mathematics and physics. <clears throat> and then I realized that the new field was radio, Uh, Back in those days, radio was the only thing. We had no television or computers or that. And uh, so my plan was, when I got to Harvard, was to specialize in radio. Now, it didn't work out exactly because after my first year in graduate school, Professor Hunt, uh, Frederick Hunt, uh, got money from the uh, school, uh, the Department of Arts and Sciences, to hire an assistant. So he looked around among the students and for some reason chose me as, as a possible assistant and I agreed. So I worked for him half-time and went to graduate school half-time courses, I mean. and. Uh, Uh, his field was acoustics and so working with him for two years as his assistant I became an acoustics man (laughs) and I stayed with it then
1: okay so as we uh, travel along here in the uh, story that Leo is telling us within his uh, NAM oral history interview um, I just wanted to pause for a minute and as I like to do, give a, a little reference to the time frame in which Leo uh, lived. He was born in 1914 and passed away just a couple of years ago, uh, 2016, at 102 years old. Um, an amazing life, as you will continue to hear. Uh, let's uh, continue on with his interest in early research. The most interesting thing I did with him was he invented the first
3: lightweight pickup, which led then to the 33 and the 45 RPM records. And that was true. It was in all the magazines. He made the basic invention that led led to the 33 and the third. Wow. And that was with me working with him.
1: Is that right? (laughs) What was that process like?
3: Well, uh, in my Chris, my relations with him were that uh, uh, we would discuss things. Uh, he was the fellow that had the uh, seniority and the um, best uh, understanding of what's going on because I was young, and uh, we would talk about things, and I would take his drawing plans down to the machine shop and, and uh, tell the machinist what we wanted to do next and take it back up and we'd test again, and he made me build a big loudspeaker that it was about, uh, I would say, uh, uh, three feet wide and and uh, six feet tall, a horn behind. And we had a bass loudspeaker, which was pretty unusual in those days. And we could buy a higher frequency uh, loudspeakers in those days. And so we made a two channel system and uh, we could then try out his pickups on this system. And so we heard some of the, uh, f- the best records of that time through our system and then of course we made our pickup then take over from the big heavy pickups that were the rule of the day in those times.
1: Very interesting. What do you think was the motivation to uh, create that pickup, to change from 78 to 33 and 45?
3: Well, I can't, the motivation to go to 33 and 45 followed the invention of the pickup, of course. But the pickup was invented because Harvard, during their tercentenary, ce- ter-centenary celebration, which was in 19... 19- Uh, 36, uh, had recorded everything on vinyl discs, but they had no way of playing them back because the heavy pickups would ruin the vinyl. So Hunt's idea was to create a pickup that would play the vinyl records.
1: That's fascinating. That is very interesting. That must have been fun to be a part of that process. Oh, it
3: sure was.
1: And so then um, you went on to continue your studies. Did that uh, change as far as acoustics?
3: Well, I, I went, stayed in acoustics, but I got interested in, in acoustics of rooms. Uh, I was not dealing anymore with uh, equipment. And so then I started publishing papers on sound in rooms. And then that led later to my concert hall work.
1: Mm, very interesting. And were there a lot of um, research being done at that time as far as uh, acoustic measurements in rooms?
3: Well, there, yes, there was. You see, we had RCA, had big laboratories, and people like the Jensen Loudspeaker Company, <clears throat> they had big laboratories. And uh, then there was research going on at Harvard, MIT, and uh, uh, U- University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. And th- those places were doing basic research also. And then there was a professor at MIT whose name was Philip Morris who wrote a book book on New Mathematics for Room Acoustics, and that helped us in our uh, research work also. Interesting,
1: yeah. That must have been an interesting time to do that sort of research, too.
3: Right. And then in World War II, I, at Harvard uh, got the money to set up a laboratory, and they made me director of a laboratory, and so in World War II, I directed the only airborne acoustics laboratory that was functioning dur- during the war years in the world. All of them went in underwater sound, because that was very important. And we designed new microphones and earphones and so on that made possible better communication in aircraft at high altitudes, in tanks, and that kind of thing.
1: Fascinating. And who was at your disposal to help you with that?
3: Well, I was given large money by the government to run this laboratory, so I hired the best people I could in the country. And it was not too hard to hire young people because they were subject to the draft. And if they worked in in a laboratory like mine, the government would defer them. And so you'd get first class, young, brilliant scientists, engineers, uh, willing to come and work for you because they get deferred.
1: (laughs) Great motivation there. Right.
3: And my principle always was to hire only very highly competent people. I always said they had to know more than me or I wouldn't hire them.
1: (laughs) Well, I was uh, interested in the... um, the research that was being done during World War II, and there were a lot of uh, efforts as far as microphones, like you were saying, that you guys developed that went on to help with the industry years later. Some of those discoveries and things were a part of the products that came out of uh, the industry after that time.
3: Yes, certainly, and also we standardized measurements. There was no standard microphone until uh, it was developed in my, World War II work. And that was a so-called one-inch diameter microphone, which today is a standard laboratory test microphone.
1: Very interesting. And so after the war, is that when you uh, began developing your thoughts about the concert hall research?
3: Well, this now gets to um, what happened. After the war, I was on at Harvard for a short time uh, as an assistant professor, and then MIT decided they wanted to expand the the running of a of an acoustics laboratory that they just set up. Dick Bolt was already there. And so they hired me as an associate professor, uh, with, a, a, with also called the technical director of the acoustics laboratory. And so Bolt and I were put together, running an acoustics laboratory at MIT when I went there in 1947.
1: Very interesting. Yeah.
3: And that led to our company then, Bolt, Brannick, and Newman, and uh, we. Uh, Up until I came, any requests that came into the president's office at MIT for acoustical consulting services were sent to Bolt. And he would take those on. And one job that he got just matured at the time I'd been there a year uh, was the United Nations buildings were being built in New York. And he got the contract to do the acoustics for the United States buildings. But, and of course, I was doing consulting for other people then. I was pr- principally the Genrad company. And uh, Bolt came around to me and said, uh, why don't we join together and, and do these big jobs together? And we're going to probably get more jobs now that this has come in. And so we formed the company, Bolt and Boronic, And that was in nine, November 1958. And then we brought Newman in in early 1950. And the reason was we brought him in. Bolt was in physics. I was in electrical engineering, which was doing microphones, loudspeakers, and that kind of thing. And Newman was an architect. And we thought if we had those three competencies in the firm we would have a better consulting firm so that was leo talking
2: about his time during world war ii and this is when we really start to see him getting involved with electronics and getting into acoustics and everything he's really known for so next we're going to hear him talking about the early challenges he had with his newly formed company as well as early customers he had and some projects that he started working on.
1: And so what were some of the challenges when you first developed the company?
3: Well, uh, not much was known about a number of things. For example, air conditioning. Nobody knew two things. They didn't know how to really quiet systems. And, and they didn't know how much noise they made nobody knew how much noise a fan made there were no measurements on it and nobody knew how quiet a room had to be what would what could you set down as a specification for adequate quiet in a room so we had to do the, s- several things one was to determine how much noise fans make how you could quiet that noise and third how what are the different levels of quiet that you want for example You can have more noise in a factory than you can have in your bedroom. So, if you're writing building specs, you could quite set the noise levels for for residence areas, for offices, for manufacturing spaces, and so on. Mm. And so that was how we started things. That led to my first book, uh, not my first book, my second book on uh, uh, noise reduction.
1: Oh, who were some of your customers in the early days there? Well, heavily
3: architects, who were, of course, given the job of building things. But we did uh, commercial jobs uh, of a big nature. For example, uh, we got the, uh, of course, we got the United Nations job I just told you about, quieting all the buildings down there and making them have good acoustics for the meetings, in the, like the General Assembly. The big General Assembly building was ours. And I designed the sound system in it. And uh, then we got a job with Pratt and Whitney, who had noisy jet engines. And how do we fix it so they can test those without disturbing their neighbors? And we had to make engine test cells. And then the Convair company hired us to quiet the interior of an airplane. And so we got to quiet the interior of an airplane, became experts on noise in airplanes. And uh, then the big uh, thing that uh, really got in the newspapers was the Cleveland big noise. Uh, The NASA set up an engine test facility, a supersonic engine test facility. What this amounted to was they were blowing air, supersonic speeds behind us, an engine that was, of course, held stationary, and it would be equivalent to the engine-going supersonic speed, and they wanted to test how the engine would perform. And so they had this big test facility, which included putting the engine into a a duct that was about six by eight feet, and then uh, coupling on the back end of that, they had a, a conical tube that allowed the air to expand so it wouldn't come out at supersonic speed. The first time they turned it on, it made so much noise that it scared the entire city of Cleveland. The city forced them to shut it down immediately, and we got a phone call at BBN saying that our laboratory will have to close down unless we can quiet this thing while we're testing it. So uh, this I took on, and we built the world's largest muffler, over 100 feet long and and about 20 by 30 feet in cross-section, and we were able to quiet that terrible noise down to where you couldn't hear it. And that made us sort of famous. (laughs) It made Time Time magazine and Life magazine pictures and so on.
1: That must have been quite a feat.
3: it was even come out even better than we thought it would.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's always good. <laughs> what was? The, what do you think the key? Were, were, did you develop um, materials that helped with that process, or was it just a matter of engineering?
3: Well, we didn't develop any new materials, but how you uh, uh, use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the low-frequency region, which was down below uh, 15 hertz, way down, we had to put in Helmholtz mufflers into a duct. And then for the middle range, we got uh, linings in, in, uh, in, in chambers and we, we had learned that if you make these dimensions and get the materials just right, you get a large amount of absorption, more than people thought in the middle range, and the high range was easy. We already had equipment for high range. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to take this thing, uh, take the noise down over a wide frequency range from a few cycles up to 10 uh, kilohertz. we take it down 30 decibels, which is a large amount.
1: Very impressive, yeah, very nice. And um, so tell me a little bit about your partners and and how did you work with them?
3: Well, of course, we always did things sort of together at first, but the way it evolved eventually was that that, uh, Bolt would take on uh, things like uh, music schools and so on. Uh, Newman would deal with the architects principally on offices and residential buildings, and I took on the things like concert halls.
0: That was Dr. Uh, Baranek talking about some of his early challenges in forming the company, his early company, some of his partners and things like that. And we're going to be moving on. To a little bit later in his life When he decided to leave that company Some of the highlights while working there And probably one of the most captivating stories When we were screening this interview Kind of falls in this section And that's uh, his involvement Essentially in developing email And when Mike and I were listening to this uh, Pre-recording just kind of screen it And see what context we were coming in We wondered how Involved, He truly was because you hear so many people claim to have invented the Internet and I've invented this and I've invented that. And you can't really trace the roots. But we did some research. We looked it up. We did some research and it's his story is totally credible. I mean,
2: yeah, it's pretty crazy. He was involved in one of the first companies, organizations that really started to develop a. Um, And I I know I'm going to get this wrong, but the use of multiple networks communicating with each other, which is essentially the Internet on a smaller scale. Yeah, very
0: different than how we see it today. Right. But primitive Internet. And they
2: were doing it before anybody else really, which is crazy to think about.
0: Right. And I love how in the end, when you listen to the segment, I want to see if you guys can get this too, is in reality, how humble <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah whatever, I'm on the internet. <laughs> no yeah, big yeah, deal. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what
1: was really funny is, you know, at that time, uh, Al Gore was getting an awful lot of flack from people when he said he invented the internet. And I sort of just threw out Al Gore's name and Leo just corrected me ever so gently like you know what he wasn't too far off actually he was there but we were there a little bit earlier and somebody actually did invent these things that you're talking about you know email and networking and all of that stuff it's You know, it's almost preposterous to think that individuals were behind it. But in fact, they were. They weren't created on the fifth day. You know, they were (laughs) around uh, because of technology and the development. And it's really cool to hear a story from a guy who was there and hired the people who basically um, created what we now know as the Internet.
0: Yeah. So let's listen to Dr. Bronick tell that story.
1: And can you tell me a little bit about what happened to the company after you left? Bolt, Bronick and Newman,
3: well, I should talk a little bit about before I left. In fact, uh, you had suggested in some earlier uh, correspondence, I might talk about what the highlights were at Bolt, Bronick and Newman. Well, the highlights, of course, were first of all the United Nations project turned out to be highly successful. Uh, the sound system in the general, in the in the big general assembly room, was had to be hidden so nobody could see it, and it worked beautifully and uh, uh, the, all the auditoriums had good acoustics in them so the um thing was a big thing for bolt Brunnick and newman then the big noise in cleveland came up i told you about then the convair company uh, wanted to have one of their airplanes quieted internally which i had mentioned and uh, then Uh, along about 1965, I got feeling that, well, BBN is only in acoustics and there's going to be a limited field there. Why don't we do something in addition? So then I thought about bringing in man-machine systems uh, where you would be like uh, blind flying of aircraft and that kind of thing. And uh, maybe other places, maybe like the the America Cup sailing boats, where there's such big cooperation between the the mechanics and, and the actual getting those sails right. And these are man-machine systems. So I thought we ought to become specialists in that. So I went after the best man I could f- find. And his name was Licklider. And he was a professor, a young professor, at uh, MIT. And I hired him away from MIT. He came in and said, look, uh, I think that BBN ought to get a digital computer. There were a lot of analog computers around, and we had them, also punch card computers. And uh, I said, well, what's it going to cost? He said about $30,000 for the most elementary one. And I said, well, geez, we never spent that amount of money. What are you going to do with it? He says, I don't know. But he said, if BBN's going to be big in the future, it should be in computers. Well, so we bought this LGP30, a small digital computer, and he spent most of his time learning how to run it. Well, how to program. What is programming? What does that mean? And then the Digital Equipment Corporation just started up and they came over and asked us if we would uh, put one of their their very first computer into our place on a test basis and see if we if there's any way they could improve it as a result of our operating it so we had their first computer there they never sold that one it was their their prototype and we worked out how to make it more user friendly with them But it was so good, that computer, we bought the first one. And that cost us 250000 <laughs> Then I went with Licklider off to Washington, and we got contracts from half a dozen agencies down there to use this digital computer doing new things. And the government was interested in getting in the digital computers also. And every, but before then, everything was IBM. And then digital came in a big way. And so uh, we worked with digital then to improve their computers, and one of their best ones was so-called PDP-8, and then, of course, the digital computer fell apart when the P- when the PC came in, because digital didn't realize that the PC was going to take over, and they, they didn't, weren't ready for it. And so that put them out of business eventually. And. Um, uh, so now, Licklider came in and he put together one of the best software groups in the United States. And then the government decided they wanted to hook together 19 big computers in the United States, million and a half dollar so, so called IBM computers, but there were several other makes. And um, the idea was if we hook those 18 together, then we can put a sort of uh, boards out in the uh, Smaller universities, and they can use the big, big universities' computers. These big computers are in universities, and of course, a couple government agencies. And uh, so they then put out a contract to to develop some kind of a network. They would hook these together. This turned out to be what's called the ARPANET. The ARPANET then started off with 19 people on it. It, it was so successful, e- we started email. We started the at sign, even. That was in our company. And uh, uh, email was, of course, a big thing. Uh, right right from the beginning, people wanted to communicate with each other. And um, uh, they could also then, as you say, the smaller universities could hook in and use their computers, particularly after midnight, sort of. <laughs> and uh, uh, then this thing grew and grew and grew and it got to be hundreds on it and then the government said why should we be why should the government be supporting this when you can get people now it's comcast and and uh, verizon and and uh, these uh, AT&T and so on. They, they, they can take it over and charge for it, and the government won't have to pay for it. They changed the name, the name then from ARPANET to INTERNET. And so we developed the Internet.
1: <laughs> Incredible.
3: Now, the Internet's been improved a lot, so there are other people who say that they have uh, sort of invented the Internet, uh, and they, they brought in big improvements. For example, WWW. We, we only could send messages out and get answers from one person each time. With the WWW send a request out for information, you get answers from every place that's ready to answer, as you know. That's what Google is. And so the WWW was a big change and was nothing that we did. So Al Gore didn't do the internet. <laughs> He, he got the Congress to put a lot of money into putting in a, a big line between the East Coast and the West Coast so they could handle big volumes of communication, and that, that then was very important. Very neat, yes.
1: What were your own personal thoughts about email in the early days? Was that uh, an interesting discovery?
3: Oh yes, absolutely. It's what made the ARPANET really valuable because people wanted to be able to communicate, ask, uh, send these messages. In fact, we found that that the three-fourths of the use of the networks was for email. Only one-fourth was for sending uh, computer, I mean, c- computing material and so on across.
1: And it required a lot of code back then, I would guess. or was it pretty simplistic?
3: Well, the of course, of course you had to have a, a ba- basic uh, rules and so on. The, we broke it, the email was broken up in little packets, and the packets uh, had addresses on them. And the big thing about packets were they could break up a message into many packets. And if the telephone lines were busy in any way, or their the communication lines that they had to go over, one packet could go there, another packet there, and they're reassembled on the other end. So they get the fastest possible communication, even when there were busy lines in between. That was part of our invention. Mm.
1: And what about the at symbol?
3: Well, it's uh, the guy that that thought thought of your name, Mr. Ray Tomlinson, said, well, I looked at typewriter and found that that looked like a logical one to use. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) So it was the at. That
1: is great. And so now, did you work with Lick and those guys after you left for Channel 5? No,
3: I completely separated. And then the BBM became a big computer company, and it sold the specialized equipment and networks and at one time had several thousand people working for it. And then they sold out to GTE. Now, GTE was a big telephone research company, and uh, GTE wanted to have networks uh, for telephone things. And then Verizon bought GTE, and so BBM was inside of, 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 of Verizon. Which, and of course, Verizon is a tremendous company, and uh, Bobronic and Numa was not practically nothing, and it's so small by comparison. And so the employees and a couple of venture capital firms bought BBN out of Verizon and set it up on its own, and was, became known as BBN Technologies was what they called it. And then that ran for, I don't know, 10 years, and then now Raytheon bought it. So it's now called Raytheon BBN Technologies, and it's still going strong, but it's it's, uh, doing many things that are different from the original networking.
1: And that must be very interesting for you to sit back and watch that grow and develop. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> All right. And I think we should have our last segment be introduced by the guy who grew up near this symphony hall.
2: Oh, that must be me.
0: That has to be you.
2: <laughs> Close, well, closer than you guys, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, after Leo's involvement with uh, his last company, he went on to work with uh, the Boston Symphony and developing loudspeakers for concert halls. So we're gonna hear him talk about that now.
3: Now you asked um, on the telephone once about uh, why is Boston Symphony Hall rated as one of the best in the world? Well, uh, there was some accidents that led to it being that good. It came out in 1900. There were no books on how to design a concert hall. And so the, uh, the, the head man here was Henry Lee Higginson, and he owned the Boston Symphony Orchestra. It was his private orchestra, and it was one of the best orchestras, well, probably the best in the United States, but he did it by hiring the very best uh, players from around the world. And um, So when they wanted to build a new hall, because the old hall had lots of problems with including poor ventilation and and so on, uh, they hired an architect Named McKim of McKim Mead White, which was a leading architectural firm in New York in the United States, and McKim himself took on the job, and he came up with a design which really was a was a, equivalent to the the, the Greek theaters uh, like the Parthenon, which is an outdoor theater, but he put a roof on it. Well. Uh, uh, Higginson said, well, you know, I don't see any halls like that around. We better look into this further. So he took the plans and and they made a model and pictured the model to Europe and went around to all the musicians and and conductors and and bu- building owners and said, what do you think of this? And they all said, don't do it because there have been some trials like that in Europe and they haven't worked. What you should do is copy the Leipzig House because it is the most acclaimed one in Europe. Well, what were its features? It was rectangular, uh, shoebox-shaped. And uh, so Higginson came back to the United States and got, and got in contact with his architect and said, I want you to come up with some shoebox-shaped designs. We are not going to take your design. And uh, so he came up with shoebox shapes. And uh, these w- had problems because the Gavana House only held 1,600 people. And Higginson said, you've got to put 2,600 in it. Well now this meant expanding the size of the of the building. So his first plan was to expand every dimension by I think to take thirty percent to bring in that much area more to take in the difference between fifteen hundred and twenty six hundred. And uh uh well uh, Higginson said no you got can't go wider than 40 then 75 feet I don't want a hall that's wider than that because it doesn't it's it's too hard to see the orchestra if it's too wide so he said now you've got to design to 75 feet wide well then McKim came up with a design that that had the uh, this width in it but that made the hall long well by then there was a young acoustical guy at Harvard who had just completed some renovations on a, a auditorium at Harvard and made it quite successful or had not worked so well before. And um, uh, the, the president of Harvard said, knew that Higginson was working on this hall. And, and uh, he went to Higginson and said, look, we got this young professor over here actually an assistant professor, and he uh, has done so well on that auditorium, you at least ought to talk to him. So Higginson invited him over, never hired him as a consultant, just as a sort of somebody to chat with, and and uh, this fellow's name was Sabine, Wallace Clement Sabine. And Sabine turned out then to be an important factor in what went on, because he, he came in when this hall was long, and he uh, talked with uh, Higginson and said, gee, that hall is just too long. And Higginson said, I think it is too. we got to shorten it down somehow. So uh, right away, uh, uh, he said, the assistant pre- professor said, let's put in two balconies instead of one. The Gavanna House only one balcony. Well, that will shorten down the hall if you put in a second balcony. Then the next thing was that in the McKim design, the orchestra was seated sort of inside the front wall, and the balconies ran over the ed- ends of the stage so they could look right down on it. He said, let's put the orchestra in the little house on the end. And then that would, see up, that would give us 200 more seats in the hall. And that shortened it some. And uh, then uh, that would still look too long, so uh, Higginson said, we'll tell the architect to narrow, uh, shorten down the spacing between the seat, rows of seats, so the rows of seat spacing will be less, and that would shorten the hall, which it did. Okay, so that solved that problem, but then there were other things that made it good. The building committee decided to make it fireproof, and so it means plaster on brick, or on concrete block and brick. And that saved the base. He gave him good, strong base. Uh, then uh, Wallace Clement Sabine had a formula that he worked out in relation to the auditorium at Harvard that made him predict if he if he could predict the reverberation time from the dimensions. And so he predicted the the, the correct cubic volume to give you the right reverberation time. That would be the same as that in the uh, House, And that fixed the ceiling height. And then uh, the, uh, the architect came in and said uh, uh, that uh, we got to put decoration on it so we'll put in coffers in the ceiling and niches and statues around the walls. and this kind of of irregularities give you a quality of the sound that you don't get at the walls were flat it gives you a better mixing of the reverberation so now we've got the the shape right the width right the length right the walls are hard the irregularities come in and uh, this then turns out to be one of the great halls of the world <laughs>
1: Incredible, yeah. And what were some of the early feedback that you received from that project? Now wait a minute, which project? the The, uh, the Boston. Well, of
3: course, Hall was designed in 1900. <laughs> and so, well, I, my, my interviews, of uh, the world's conductors and music critics said that's one of the great halls. Mm. So then you'd use that in talking with architects as saying, you really ought to build this kind of hall. But as I said before, they don't like to.
1: <laughs> and that must be an interesting technique that you've had to develop, is how to talk with architects and, uh, and others.
3: And, of course, I've got this, all this written up in my books, so they know now that you, uh, first of all, shouldn't line with thin wood and stuff like that, get the reverberation right and how you can calculate it now properly, all those things.
1: Yeah, it's extraordinary. And one of the things that, of course, um, There's an awful lot of people who point to you as their influence as far as the development that they've made in their own careers all over the world.
3: Well, of course, uh, BBN turned out to be sort of a school for consultants. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there are now some 30 consulting firms, people who work for BBN. For example, Kierkegaard in Chicago. Uh, He worked for me for 16 years Mm -hmm. and then formed his own company. He's one of the leading consulting firms in the the world on concert halls. Uh, Russell Johnson, who died recently, worked for me also for 16 years Mm -hmm. and formed the Arctic Company in New York, which got to be a big one in concert hall design. And then there's others all around. (laughs) So, so we were part of a school, you might say, for consultants.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a legacy there, right? In the uh, emails that we exchanged, one of the things that um, I didn't get a chance to ask you was. Um, as far as the speaker cabinets and, and the microphones and the products and so on and so forth, like that, well, how, where does that fit into the design of these concert halls and who makes those decisions as to what is the best product for each area? Are You're talking about loudspeakers? Yeah.
3: Well, first of all, let me say something. I wrote my My first book was called Acoustics, came out in 1954. And it, for the first time, talked about how you could sort of really mathematically design loudspeakers and the boxes that they were put in. And two of my students uh, decided that they could make, by using my theory and getting speakers to be different, they could build loudspeakers as small as, as a, a sort of one to two cubic feet that you could put on a shelf in your library. And all before then, all loudspeakers were been big things, uh, and uh, a loudspeaker in a big box. And this then meant you could put a smaller loudspeaker in a cabinet on the shelf, and it still sounded like it had bass. And they got those things out of my book. So the the these the whole chains and the smaller cabinets as a result of my things I published in the in the book.
1: So continuing on in our uh, podcast today on um, industry heroes and innovators in audio, I think it's time for a, a second real legend, uh, and that is Dr. Sidney Harmon and our interview with him that goes back to 2008. Um, Sydney was born in Canada in 1918, passed away in uh, 2011, and is probably best known for the company with his name, Harmon Industries, um, starting out in... Um, car audio equipment um, back in 1953 and developing into pro audio and speakers and at one point of course uh, purchasing JBL and expanding even further into the industry uh, with a number of uh, other names and companies under his large umbrella and really became quite a giant in our industry and uh, because he was Living in the Los Angeles area, we had an opportunity to do an interview with him, which uh, took about three years to actually coordinate because of his amazing schedule, even as he was approaching 90 years old. But I'm very pleased and proud that we do have an interview with him in our collection. So today is our day to hear, uh, to hear that interview.
0: And we're going to start just like we do with a lot of our interviews, collecting some background information and kind of setting up the foundations for dance talk with Dr. Harmon. So here he is talking about the early stages of his life and where his interest began.
1: Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? What sort of uh, background did you have as a kid? You know, I'm asked that all the time.
4: Uh, first, I have to tell you that uh, my mother was a reasonably accomplished pianist. Uh, there was always that in the house. There was also a uh, phonograph of sorts uh, and the conventional three-tube AC-DC radio. The combination of that stuff in the classes in school that the teachers called music appreciation that I recall my father speaking of as music depreciation, should together have been enough to discourage any interest in music. Nonetheless, uh, wherever it happened, I paid a lot of attention to the music that was played in the house. I began a modest career as a violinist the superintendent of the apartment building in which we lived, taught me how to play the violin. Music and reading and an enormous growing appetite for all the arts, the visual arts, the red arts, the heard arts, is a very important part of my young life and has been with me ever since.
1: So what made you um, interested in in starting the business in the early 50s? Well, that's easy.
4: (coughs) You've got to come up with a tougher question than that. (laughs)
1: Uh, I, other than
4: my time in the Army, World War II, not the Civil War, uh, (laughs) other than my time in the Army and serving in the government, the only job I ever had other than Harmon was in the first in the engineering department of a small electronics manufacturer in New York City, the Bogan Company. In your business you know the name Bogan. Uh, I was hired first to work in the small engineering department, and legend holds some months into my service in that engineering department. The chief engineer was heard and observed racing down the hall to Mr. Bogan's office, shouting, if you do not get this idiot out of my engineering department, he will single-handedly lose the war. That began my career as a manager and uh, (laughs) with, with the interruption of my time in the army I spent some 14 years at the Bogan Company and at the end I was its general manager or executive vice president, effectively the chief operating officer of the company. Mr. Bogan, from whom I learned an enormous amount, both things I wanted to do and should pay attention to, one of them was pay attention, and things I did not want to do, (coughs) uh, a lack of real, genuine interest in the development of the employees, Mr. Bogan and I were forever in disagreement. Uh, even though he clearly taught me a very great deal, though I had and continued tremendous respect for his very special skills. Uh, when I had urged that we learn lessons from what the chief engineer, who, the guy who got rid of me, and who had become my close personal friend Uh, learn lessons from what he, Bernard Cardin, uh, and I had done, Uh, and convert those lessons commercially, Mr. Bogan was flat out uninterested. Those lessons were simple. We had borrowed some of uh, the public address equipment that the Bogan company made and had modified it, improved the frequency response, the noise content, distortion, all that stuff. Uh, Then I had made arrangements with one of the local radio stations. They were honorable arrangements to borrow a couple of transcription players. Remember, these were the days of 78 RPM. (coughs) And then Bernie Cardin and I put together (laughs) the most astonishing, frightening-looking array of loudspeakers that we somehow borrowed and assembled and set up these gigantic, relatively gigantic systems in our own small apartments. Family and friends came to listen and were blown away. I argued with Mr. Bogan, hey, there must be a constituency for this kind of product why don't we refine it, develop it, market it? Although the Bogan company did finally produce some pretty popular music reproducing amplifiers under the Bogan label, he really wasn't very interested. More than that, I must confess that he had a son my age, And his son-in-law, my age, coming into the business, active in the business at the time. That combination persuaded me that, as the then number two person in the company to Mr. Bogan, I had come as far as I was going to come. Bernie Cardin and I, really taken by what we were doing, summoned on reflection the astonishing courage uh, we each dug up $5,000, and in 1953, as you suggest, we began Harman Kardon. Hmm. That was, I need hardly tell you, the very first days of what, for the lengthiest time, we all, rec- all referred to as the high fidelity industry. Subsequently, it became, for reasons that always troubled me, the stereo industry and now I think we all speak of it as the audio industry.
0: Alright, so next we're gonna hear up from Dr. Harmon, his background in engineering and a lo- some reflections on his career, as well as some highlights of his early days and challenges that he faced along the way.
1: Now, did Bernard have a, a background in engineering as well? Oh yes, uh, that was
4: a remarkably creative engineer. Uh, and. Uh, of course, he had a background, and not only background, but an active foreground in engineering. He was the chief engineer of the Bogan Company. He made significant contributions to that company. And, of course, he made very significant contributions to Harmon Kardon. Three years after the creation of Harmon Kardon, and we had surged, uh, and those days were fascinating days and days of sweet memory for me, About three years after the formation of the company, as well as I remember it, his $5,000 had grown to something like $365,000, and Bernie decided early age that he wanted to
1: retire, and he did. What were some of the, you said, the the sweet memories of those early days? I'm sort of curious as to, in the beginning, the challenges, and and so you're not just building a company, you're basically building an industry.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'm
1: as good a revisionist historian as anybody,
4: but it would be very easy for me to say that a group of us sat down and said, we see the future. We are going to design it. I don't think that happened to any of us, and the any of us included such, for me, luminous names as Avery Fisher and Herman Hosmer Scott, uh, Carl Jensen. What happened was that a number of people through one accident or another in their lives found themselves interested in this clearly fledgling activity. I think it fair to say that no one of us thought of himself as a uh, master of the universe, a great businessman. We had uh, personal powerful affection for what we were doing. And we struggled to find people who might be interested in what we were doing, which simply stated amounted to reproducing music at a level unheard of in those days. I remind you, those were in fact the days of three-tube ACDC radios. You listen to radio on those products, (coughs) you might have a large console in your home. Great furniture. You might well have that large console in your home. Inside that console was a three-tube AC-DC radio. And what radios there were in cars made those three-tube AC-DC radios look pretty good. People did not listen to music either over the air or reproduce through records at a level of any value at all. To... Promote our instinct for the kinds of products we were making, we managed informally to get together and rent a floor or two in one of the old New York hotels. The Pennsylvania comes to mind. The New Yorker (laughs) comes to mind. The Taft. I no longer remember that we were in all of them, but I know that we were in the New Yorker. We would clear those small, really small, little bedrooms in the hotel of their modest furnishings and each of us would set up the product he had set sell. Nobody sold to complete anything. Some of us reco cut, sold a turntable. Uh, others sold cartridges. Others had loudspeakers, we, we had amplifiers, uh, you see the picture. In each room in that hotel, I think it fair to say everyone, almost everyone did the same thing. His product, and if I remember, there were, in the early days, no women. His product would be mounted on a pegboard, put against the wall, in this room, lighted by fluorescence, and left to be lighted by fluorescence. Literature of some modest sort was there, And here was Columbia Records, the great record label of the day, persuading each of us, this new high dynamic range, Richard Strauss' version of Thus Spoke Zarathustra would knock their socks off. So in every single room, (laughs) the demonstration of whatever it was They were selling loudspeaker, cartridge, you name it. That room was blasting Zarathustra. There was one room that was an exception. Bernie and I cleared out the yellow furniture, as did everybody else. We forsook pegboard display. We turned off the fluorescence. We borrowed or stole some incandescent light fixtures. We built something like a living room. We hung a poster or a print or something on the wall. walk into the room. It did not look like a hardware display. And you heard not a note of Zarathustra. What you heard was Sinatra and people were staggered by it. Not only was he at his peak in 1953, but everybody listened to Sinatra on that 3 B C CDC radio. They had a reasonable comparison to make between what they had heard that morning, getting dressed, or at breakfast, or in the car, and what they were listening to in our room. Who compared the Zarathustra they were listening to to the Zarathustra they l- listened to that morning? We had numbers of people walk into the room and say, where is he? So compelling was the difference. It's a vivid recollection of the early days, responsive to your question, I suppose it's possible that I've romanticized it a little bit. I don't really think I have.
1: Hey, Elizabeth, did you happen to know that Sydney was once the U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce?
0: I did not know that.
2: Yeah. I feel like I... I don't wanna say I knew that, but I feel like that sounds familiar.
1: It was in 1977, so I'm sure you remember it on the news. Right, because I was alive. (laughs) I was negative, what? Don't tell me. (laughs) I was 10.
2: Negative 17, I think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But an amazing career. Um, And one comment that I wanted to share with you was just that very special day uh, in September of 2008 when uh, I was able to go to uh, his home right on the beach in, in Venice, California. Uh, absolutely a gorgeous day, and the artwork in that house alone was absolutely stunning. Uh, the people there who were helping us coordinate the interview uh, were all very, very nice and helping us set up and get the camera ready and all of that. And I just remember uh, Sydney coming over and making sure everything was okay, wanting to know what. Most we wanted to get out of the interview. You know, he didn't want to waste our time, he didn't want to give us a bunch of, you know, soapbox. Type of things. He had just purchased a Newsweek magazine at the time. And so a lot of uh, CNN and those kind of um, news networks were out asking his questions of, you know, why did you make this uh, purchase into the publishing world and what are you trying to gain and things like that. So he was trying to really focus in on what it was that we wanted to walk away with, which I really appreciated. And, uh, you know, so often people are interested in providing us what they want, but when somebody is at that level, level they have a million ways that they could go and i think the fact that he took the time to uh to hone in on what it was that we were trying to collect for our collection i think uh was uh, very much appreciated so it was a it was a great day i really enjoyed it and enjoyed our opportunity to learn from him and to document his story which i'm proud to uh, share on this podcast with you guys so where are we off to next
0: Mike just shakes said, have no I have idea. no idea. <laughs> what are you
1: talking about? Let me try again. So where are we off to next, Mike? I
0: still don't know. No. Where where are we putting this? Let me split? help you let me help you out, Mike.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Elizabeth, where are we going next?
0: Third time's a charm. We are gonna be talking about Dr. Harmon's thoughts and developments of the product line in the company over the years, which it sounds like, Dan, that in reality, you know, he's very knowledgeable about sound. He's very knowledgeable about knowledgeable about audio, but it sounds like in his heart of hearts, like he's a businessman.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think the business aspect of it um, developed over time. It wasn't really his first training, but certainly he became a magnet, you know, really somebody who was very good at knowing what companies to purchase and when and how to expand with certain products and their certain products. Uh, lines, uh, JBL, for example. uh, So very, very knowledgeable on that. But I think his heart was always in audio. And going back to the Harman Kardon years uh, back in 1953, when he and his partner started um, making uh, large quantities of audio gear for automobiles and stereos and, and speakers that really up until that point weren't made by outside companies other than the car manufacturers. So they had an opportunity to create higher-end speakers, for example, and better audio equipment, um, stereo systems for cars, which was an amazing add-on that we all know helped um, that industry grow tremendously over the years.
0: Yeah. So we're going to hear about the development of the product lines in the company, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, as well as in this segment, knowing, kind of having Dr. Harmon reflect on the idea that while these products were coming out, that they were innovating, that being self-aware during that time. um, And he's also going to touch on some tragedies that occurred within the plants that he was a part of, you know, whether it be fire or earthquakes, so on. And then we're going to conclude his segment with Some kind of business practices, some general business practices about how you treat employees and other aspects of what made him so successful.
1: What sort of um, thoughts did you have about the product line, and how did that sort of develop in those early days? Well, we
4: we loved what we were doing. Uh, You hear that all the time, and it's often true was, oh, without question, true for us. We loved the product. We loved what it was for. We really loved the people who worked for us. Uh, It's a point of view that I tell you proudly has colored my thinking about business all the years, that half century and more. The people were so crucially important. in those early days, the combination of the opportunity to innovate, to invent, because this was a tabula rasa, uh, to do it in product, to do it in marketing, to do it in our relationship with the employees. That was pretty heady stuff. Last week, I had dinner at home, Jane and I with dear old friends the sainted Daniel Shore Uh, Daniel Shore continues to be the wise man voice on NPR radio all these decades later and he loves the story I'm about to tell you it's true And there's something to do with your question. It was just about 1953 or 1954, the United Nations was celebrating the first anniversary of its presence in um, that set of buildings downtown in New York City on the east side of New York, 39th Street, 4th Street. The magnificent Pablo Casals had returned from self-imposed exile in Puerto Rico to do a concert in celebration of the anniversary. And this was, I need not remind you, the earliest days of television. And young Daniel Shaw, for CBS, interviewed the maestro, truly a great man, was Casals, a poet, a luminous cellist, a great musician, tremendous humanist. And they were standing outside on the sidewalk, live, black and white TV, shore towering over the diminutive casals, the sun glinting off the bald pate of the maestro. Dan asked him, tell me, maestro, why in this celebration of the United Nations, some 130 countries and cultures in the world, Did you choose a program that was exclusively Johann Sebastian Bach? Casals looked up at him, a tear formed in his eye, and he responded, why not? Bach is my best friend. I'm touched today, as I was then, by the remarkable man reaching over the centuries for his very best friend. That provoked in me a determination to do an advertising program. I'm responding to your question about what was it like, where was the fun. I purchased a number of pages in the magazine section of the New York Times. As I remember it, a full page in the magazine section of the New York Times in that year cost something like six or $700. I found a friend who was a pretty competent artist and I commissioned him, pretty grand gesture. I paid him to do a sketch of Pablo Casals sitting in a wicker chair from the rear with the great man bent over his cello. I got myself a hell of a sketch and that ad appeared full page, black and white <coughs> in the New York Times Magazine with the headline, Bach is my best friend. And the text of the ad said, If you have some fondness for Bach, or Sinatra, or any of the other great music makers on earth, let us tell you how best to listen to him. And another ad in that group, I wanted it to be Sinatra, but he wanted to get paid, was one that featured Magnificent musician and glorious human being, who became a friend of mine. And consequence of all this, you've heard of Duke Ellington. Uh-huh. We had a picture, wonderful picture of the Duke, chiaroscuro picture, bent over the piano. And the headline of this full-page ad in the New York Times magazine read. The Duke was made for high fidelity, and how could you resist? Funny, what the hell that means. <laughs> uh, building that business in those days was a combination of great funds, the fun of creativeness. Bernie Cardin, very creative engineer the fun of developing yourselves and the people who work for you, the form of developing a brand, the fun of marketing it, the kind of advertising I speak of, what we did in the uh, exhibition (laughs) halls, uh, and the travel. I traveled every state of the country, be gone three weeks at a time hammering a car with a sales rep from one city to another, introducing the brand new idea of this business to people who until they saw me were making their livings selling radio parts, selling bicycles, whatever. Uh, building an industry. That was fun.
1: Mm. I bet and very innovative. Did you have the sense that you guys were as innovative at the time?
4: Oh, I think so. That's different from did we have a sense that we were historic. (laughs) Who the hell knew? We were trying to make a living. (laughs) Uh, We were trying to pay our bills. We were trying to keep the people quiet, happy. We had a loft on Broadway downtown the Adam Hat Building. And come summer, it was damned hot uh, in that loft. And if I had a visitor, a possibility of persuading him to do business with us, I would walk him through our one floor, doing it in as circuitous a fashion as I could, and then I would breezily suggest to him we were, um, whatever it was, the fourth floor of this seven-story loft. Little point in going through the other six floors there, Oh, very much the same. Uh, it was heady stuff. We were having a great time. Did we know what was in store for us? My. Doubt it. Uh, we worked furiously I mean, all the time, and as I told you earlier, we had, I suppose, kind of meteoric run of it in those early years. Bought a brand new, built-for-spec factory in uh, Long Island, small place but it was crisp, it was clean. It was not hot in the summer as New York was because it was air conditioned. I remember in New York listening to the complaints of the people on the production line. After all, in addition to the summer heat and the heat from the lights in the plant, they were holding soldering irons. When are we going to do something about air conditioning? I have just done it. I ordered the most wonderful air conditioning system, marvelous. When will it be here? Just a few months. What did you buy? It's called Winter. Um, got away with that for a little while in New York. The plant in uh, near Westbury and. Uh, that was neat. And then I remember, nor will I ever forget, that on Thanksgiving Eve, early year, it burned to the ground. <laughs> oh, that was a tragic time. And our task was to rebuild it and encourage the people. We're going to be bigger, stronger. Uh, we got it done. Uh, not the only, no, but the first of that kind of tragedy we had. Uh, I'm recalling a stunning crisis in Northridge in 1992, the great earthquake. had plant out here, somewhat larger plant than the one in Long Island, oh, it was Delta. Unbelievable smash. We rebuilt that and we were the first plant of any consequence back in service out there. The people did it back then, more recently out in California.
1: There's been a lot of talk about um, and a lot written about what you um, Focused on as far as your employees and the books that came out from that um, idea and, and the Tennessee uh, plant, or was it Mississippi?
4: Tennessee. Bolivar, Tennessee.
1: Yeah. Tell me about about that. I'm sure it wasn't. It didn't start with the plants. You had already ideas of how to um, best treat your employees.
4: Uh. This will take some time and probably run us through. uh, I've had an interesting life. And there was a time in my life when I did simultaneously, full-time, run this company, and full-time serve as president of a transnational Quaker College that was built on a very interesting set of premises. The combination of my interest in civil rights and the civil rights movement. had been my good fortune to come to know the Reverend Martin Luther King and to teach in Farmville, Virginia, which is itself, uh, for me, Significant and fascinating story. Prince Edward County in Virginia was the only county in the country to thwart the Supreme Court decision. Brown versus the Board of Education, the integration of the school systems, the public school system. To thwart it, they shut down the public school systems. And then, under the sponsorship of Bobby Kennedy and Bill Vanden Heuvel and I, we formed the Prince Edward County Free School Association. You see a kind of pause here. I'm remembering it. I'm remembering Bobby Kennedy. I'm remembering... A wonderful visit I had with his daughter Carrie Kennedy just a few months ago, during which we reminisced about Prince Edward County, about the Free School Association. What we did was to rent the abandoned public school buildings. Said <coughs> so to all the residents of Prince Edward County, you all come. 4,000 black children, deprived of any education for years, brought back to school. As I recall it, five, six very courageous white families sent their kids here instead of sending them to the Prince Edward Academy, which had been set up by the county, free for Caucasians only, a private school. I flew down to Virginia, to Richmond. I think it was Richmond. Every week, my own expense, to teach for two days. I taught history as well as I thought I could, having studied at length the work and writings of Frederick Douglass, the great hero of black thought in the South. I taught American history as well as I could from the perspective of Southern black. And I taught a class that was rather grandly entitled "Sydney's Aesthetics. I loved it all. consequence of that and the fact that I had been the president of the Board of Education out on Long Island led me to Friends World College. <clears throat> there I asked the then president, great, in my view, American educator Morris Mitchell, told Morris Mitchell I would like to teach there. I'll never forget his response. Sidney, if you want to teach at this wonderful school, serve an apprenticeship. I said, I'm happy to do it. How do you do it? He said, join the Board of Trustees. That's a view of learning that I rather admire. I did, and then went to my everlasting regret, and that of anyone who ever met Morris Mitchell, that great man died of cancer, to my astonishment. The board asked me to serve as president to replace him, succeed him. And so there was a period in my life, for three years, when I would arrive at my office in Lake Success, Long Island, at about 6.30, quarter to seven in the morning, work there, dressed in the suit, until 1, 1.30 in the afternoon, a pretty full day. Get into my car, drive to Northport, Long Island. About a 40 minute ride, that was the headquarters of the college in the United States. Eat my bag, lunch on the way, change from my suit into an outfit pretty much like yours. Uh-huh. T-shirt, jeans, and be president of a college until midnight, roll into bed the next morning, back at work at Tycoon at 6.30 in the morning, three crazy, wonderful years. But in that period, I became enormously interested. I'd always been interested, enormously interested in epistemology, in education, in learning and became very much a fan of the writings of two educators I still regard as very consequential, Eva it's of Mexico, Paulo Freire of Brazil, each of whom really said in effect, our educational system has got it upside down. It is authoritative command down, the faculty knows everything, The kids are empty vessels into whom they pour some information. They were hardly new in that criticism. Socrates offered the same point of view. And I remember talking to Socrates when I was just a youth. Uh, We developed that college had centers around the world, in Mexico, in Africa in India, and Great Britain, uh, and a lovely idea of the college. We don't have time for this. But the student entered the college. There were seven centers around the world. The student entered the college at the center closest to his or her home, spent a semester there, and then moved serially around the other six centers, one semester at each, eight center back at home. Having experienced the multilingual, multicultural, Multinational student population all through. Wonderful idea. <clears throat> Here I was living this strange bifurcated life. half-time president of a college that said life moved bottom up. Business, autocratic, traditional, top down. Then in Bolivar, Tennessee where we had inherited a dreadful factory, cost of an acquisition, that made side view mirrors for automobiles. I had a transforming life, transforming experience. In that awful plant, (coughs) the most awful department was the polish and buff department. There, a dozen old black men. If you were black and 40 in Bolivar, Tennessee, most retrogressive part of the country, you were an old man. And there, a dozen old black men held these die castings, these zinc castings, up against the polishing wheel and the buffing compound to polish them so they could be painted to match the colors of the cars. That stuff spraying in the air, clogging their lungs. 10 o'clock at night, second shift, there was a buzzer that signaled coffee break. It failed. Management, in its infinite wisdom, said no problem. We know how to activate the buzzer 10 or 12 minutes later. It was simply shift the coffee break. Then it was that a remarkable man, beautiful, biblical name, Noby Cross, changed my life. Noby said to his colleagues, (coughs) I don't work for no buzzer. The buzzer works for me. And he, in effect, said, I got me a watch. I know when it's 10 o'clock. That's all it buzzes for. Off to my coffee break at 10 o'clock. All hell broke loose. I'm sitting in the comfort of my office in Lake Success, Long Island. I got to call you, better get your rear end down here. Down there, with the help of Michael Maccabee and Irving Bluestone. Maccabee, great American psychologist... Bluestone, number two man then in the UAW, Tennessee, right to work state. This epiphany. <clears throat> Why the hell don't I apply the lessons of the college to the workplace? Empower the worker. is a phrase that began down there. The first effort, widely held here, the first effort in American industrial history to alter the traditional adversary relationship between workers and managers took place in Bolivar, Tennessee, in that dreadful plant. I joke often that Charles Dickens came to see me there and said, hey, kid, you must be kidding. So awful did he find it. The editor of the great newspaper, The Nashville Tennessee, Tennessean, sent a young reporter down there to find out what all the noise was about. Wrote a series of articles, which were widely distributed in the country. Read by the then-Vice President-elect, Fritz Mondale. Referred them to the President-elect, who said, bring that clown down here. Let's talk to him. It began my career in government. This is my last word to you, my friend. The guy who wrote that series of articles, that cub reporter, was Al Gore Jr. And so where did my interest in the development, the lives, the responsibility of the workers develop it developed from my the lessons learned as I engaged in the civil rights movement, the lessons learned from the combination of that World Friends College experience and the transfer of those lessons to the industrial workplace. And
1: I'm in every sense the beneficiary, the richer for all of that. So there you have it. That's our 2008 interview with Sidney Harmon. And uh, that concludes this installment of the, uh, the Music History Project and uh, the Industry Heroes and Innovators in Audio. I really hope that you guys enjoyed these two interviews and um, learned a little bit more about these two stellar giants within our industry.
0: And we're going to see you guys back in two weeks. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Bye. (laughs) (laughs) That was great, Mike. Less creepy.